to Table Radio. We continue our discussion on our fifth-rooted theme, Spiritual Inbreaking. The following is Andy's sermon from our Big Table service on Sunday, February 28th. Enjoy! And you called it That's why we praise you On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was at the table with his disciples. And knowing that his end was near, he remembered to whom he belonged. He remembered that he belonged to a love and a family that existed before time began, before the creation of the world. And knowing who he was, and where he came from, and where he was going, and to whom he belonged, he looked around at his disciples seated around the table, and he loved them. And he wanted to teach them one last thing. So he got up from the table, and he removed his outer garments, the same garments that he knew would be stripped from him in just a few short hours. And he took a basin of water and he knelt down. Their Lord and their king knelt down and taking the form of a servant, he washed their feet. This was a humiliation so pronounced It offended his disciples, but he did not relent. It foreshadowed his death on the cross, a humiliation also so pronounced, it still offends to this day, but he did not relent. And when it was finished, he rose up, that is from washing their feet, and he said to them, this also is how you are to love one another, a love as strong as death. This is what it means to belong to Jesus' discipleship community, to be loved in this way and to love in this way. Now, how are we to square this beautiful and amazing act and this call to a radical love with the fact that Jesus isn't here? He's not with us. We can't see him. At least he's not with us in the same way. Not in the flesh. But the answer to this question will be Jesus' focus for much of the rest of that evening when he was with his disciples and right before his arrest. And we're going to pick up a small part of that answer in John 14 that Michaela read. Jesus will go at great pains to address this problem. How can I prepare my disciples to relate to me in a different way once my physical presence has been removed? And this topic is of great interest to Jesus' disciples today. Now our passage begins with Jesus giving a conditional, and it reads off the page in the English in a way that would bother many of us. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, for many of this, this sounds familiar and not in a good way. 
perhaps maybe a passive-aggressive setting or a codependent relationship, as if Jesus will be saying, now, if you really loved me, you would prove it to me by doing what I say. It's something that I would say to my kids if I wanted them to clean up the living room and I was getting impatient. Oh, sorry, check that. It's something I have said to my kids when I wanted them to clean up the living room and I was getting impatient. But this is not what Jesus is saying. This is not the force of it. It can't be, and we would know this simply by reading the rest of the chapters of this, around this evening before Jesus is arrested. Instead, Jesus is saying, if you want to know how to obey me, then love me. Think about that. If you want to know how to obey me, you think about Jesus' words and his commandments. You think about this teaching with the um, washing the disciples' feet and laying down his life. I want you to love one another like that. Oh, Lord, how are we going to do that? Or maybe think to his Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not lie. But I say to you, if you even think it, if you even have that, if you harbor that in your hearts, in your minds, in your imagination, you are guilty. And that can feel crushing. Well, then how... Lord, who can live into this reality? But here he's giving us the secret. He's letting us in. Love me. Love is the fuel that drives our obedience to Jesus. If you love me, then you will obey my commandments. Then you will be able to obey my commandments. Jesus knows that we are fueled by what we worship, by who we worship. He knows that worship trains our affections and it orders and reorders our heart and our will like nothing else can. Not our sense of duty or obligation, as powerful as those might be. Not our discipline and our hard work and all our goal settings, as good as those might be. Because those things themselves are ultimately driven by what we love, by what we worship. Jesus will reinforce this whole idea in the next chapter where he says, abide in me, abide in my love, live out of my love for you. And he ties it to fruit, to works, to obedience, to living into God's kingdom in the way that Jesus is describing. That we will be able to love in the radical way that Jesus loved when we are transformed by his love. So, rooting in Jesus' love, it fuels our obedience to Jesus' words. This is our first discovery in this passage and it leads right into our second discovery that Jesus and the Father are one and the Spirit is two. That's confusing. Jesus and the Father are one and so is the Spirit, is also one with them. Just before our passage, it was read bef uh, before Michaela read her bit, Jesus is explaining to the disciples that he and the Father are one. 
So intertwined and so closely connected are the Father and the Son that Jesus says in verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now think about that. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is working hard through this whole evening to make the disciples understand this essential relationship. He and the Father are united. They're one. If they have one, they also have the other. If they've seen one, they've seen the other. If they're with one, they're with the other. But it doesn't stop there. The Spirit makes his entrance too. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will send another helper that assumes they already have the first helper. Here comes another one like the first. Jesus is the one they know. Another one like Jesus is coming. Jesus says the world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. He says to the disciples, you know him. You know the Spirit. Well, how is that possible? Because the Spirit dwells with you now, present tense, and will be in you then, future tense. The now is in Jesus' presence. The Spirit dwells with the disciples now because Jesus is with them now. Now stay with me here because this is important. It'll be practical application later on. The Spirit dwells with them now because Jesus is with them now. In verse 20, Jesus speaking about the future, he says, in that day, after this is over, in that day, later on, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. I'm going to be in you, says Jesus. I will dwell in you. So when he says the Spirit will be in you later, it looks a lot like the reference point is Jesus himself. These are tied together. All three, Father, Son, Spirit, tied together. You can't be with one of them and not also be with the other two. This is the implication that Jesus is trying to make clear to the disciples. You can't see one and not also see the other two. We can't be with Jesus and not also be with the Father and the Spirit. And vice versa. So, first discovery, we abide or we live out of Jesus' love and we're transformed to love like Jesus. And second, we abide or we live out of Jesus' love and we abide also in the Spirit and in the Father. So third discovery, as we keep going, Judas asks a question. And Judas, not Iscariot, I'm sure he was really appreciative of that designation after the fact. He's got a question for Jesus because Jesus has just said, I'm going to manifest myself to you. Just to you, the disciples, not the world, but to you. And Judas has a question, wait a minute. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? How is it? And I think there's two questions tied up there. Why is it and how are you going to do it? The disciples, like many of us, would love to see Jesus make his true identity known to the whole world. Wouldn't that be great? That's what a lot of us say. Come on, make it obvious. And the disciples, no doubt, were in that boat. Like, 
Come on, what are you waiting for, Jesus? And then, anyway, how would you just reveal yourself to your disciples and not to the world? And this is Jesus' answer. This intimacy, this belonging and this connection and this knowing and being known, it's reserved for those who dwell in my love and live out of my words. This intimacy is reserved for those, at least for now, for those who dwell in my love and live out of my words. One implication of this statement is that perhaps to experience Jesus apart from his love and his words would not be a good experience. Would perhaps not end well. Augustine thought that Beholding the glory of God apart from God's love would be a dangerous and destructive experience. And so it may be tied to the mercy of God that in this in-between time, until the end, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess and all will see, until then, Jesus is reserving the presence and the knowledge of God for those who accept this invitation into the mercy and the love of God. Tethered to this, it's kind of a fourth discovery, maybe a third and a half. This third discovery being Jesus is not yet disclosing himself to the world, but only to disciples of Jesus. Is this, rooting in Jesus' love and words are tied with perceiving Jesus through the Spirit. That's, there's a lot of words there, so I'm going to say it again. Rooting ourselves in Jesus' love and rooting ourselves in his words, they have to do with being able to see Jesus, not, not physically speaking in the flesh, but whatever he's talking about when he says, I will come to you and I will manifest myself to you. I will disclose myself to you in verse 21. And later on in verse 23, the Father and I, for those who love me and keep my words, the Father and I will come to you and make our home with you. And backing up to verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Now that word there, see not talking about a physical seeing. It may include the resurrection appearances, but that can't be the whole setting because Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He wasn't talking, I'll come back and visit for 40 days and then I'll leave you as orphans. He's talking in ongoing things. This is a larger context we're talking about. So what does he mean when you will see me? Well, this Greek word behind the word see that I didn't write down, nor do I remember, this Greek word behind the word see is used about half a dozen times in John, in John's gospel. And it's always tied to a deeper perceiving of Jesus' identity and power and glory beyond just what was physically seen. So, for example, in John chapter 2, it's the miracle in Cana at the wedding. He returns the water into wine. You know, none of the wedding guests saw that. They just got to experience this better wine towards the end of the wedding. All they saw was Mary's son, Mary's plus one. But some of the servants and some of Jesus' disciples, they saw the action. 
And so that word, they saw his glory begin to be revealed at Cana. They began to see something and perceive something deeper about this Jesus beneath the surface. Another instance is in John chapter 4. Anna preached on this a couple weeks ago. The woman at the well, what she doesn't use the word for see here, but what she perceives to begin with is just the physical. Here's a Jewish man meeting with a Samaritan woman alone at a well. This is inappropriate. This is taboo. They engage in dialogue about halfway through. Ah, sir, I perceive. There's that word. I see that you are a prophet. Something's been revealed about the nature of Jesus beyond just the physical. And then by the end, she wonders, could this be the Messiah? We could go outside of John's gospel. This concept is familiar in the New Testament. We can think of Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ, but not fully seeing him yet. And Jesus says, flesh and blood, your eyes have not caused you to see this, but God has opened your eyes to see something deeper. This is what Jesus is promising a, a deeper perceiving, a seeing of him coming to his disciples who enter in to his invitation to this love. Now the words of Jesus are central here. Shift, they shift our perspective to what's real and what's true. And it's they themselves that reveal the deep love of Jesus and the Father for us. Without the words of Jesus, we wouldn't know why he died on the cross. We wouldn't know the significance of this foot washing and this command to love and live out of my love and love as I have loved you. So, what is Jesus saying with all of this? I think it's this. I think Jesus is saying this, that he is inviting all his disciples to enter into a family love that existed before time began. So you go back to the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And it's always existed. So the implication is that God did not create love or family or community. He's always been those things. He's always been in relationship, in a love relationship with others. It's intrinsic to his nature. That's why John can say in one of his letters, God is love. So he's inviting all his disciples to enter into this same love that has always existed between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. This is the inner circle of God's love. He is saying, essentially, if you root in my love, this love that I'm inviting you into, then you will enter into a real family relationship with the Father and the Son through the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit comes to you, the Father and the Son come to you. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, the Father and the Son dwell in you. And that's not it but you will also be able to see this or learn how to perceive it. Like the woman at the well, like the disciples over time, 
is a learning process. And the servants at the wedding. But it was only through time spent with Jesus that they learned to see the deeper things about his, who he is. You will be able to experience my presence, says Jesus, in you and with you. I want to talk about four implications of this reality, of this truth. Practical. What do we do? How do we live out of this? And the first one that occurred to me was that we must allow Jesus' words to tap into our deep longings. You read through the Gospels, Jesus has a lot of hard sayings or maybe some things that are difficult or complicated, like, why does he say that there? That's weird. I don't get it. But he has so many things he says and does that tap into our deepest longings. That makes us say as we read, man, I wish that were true. Oh, that sounds so good. Oh, that's so nice. To let this fuel our hearts and our, tap into our longings. Reorder our desires to fall in love with Jesus all over again. And to allow this to fuel, to fuel and transform our hearts into obedience. And one real practical thing is speak your words of love to him. Out loud, in an empty room if you're self-conscious about it. But your words are powerful. And they carry power with them. We were made that way. They're powerful. If you've ever looked at somebody in the eyes and spoken to them or said, I love you, or blessed them, like our neighborhood table blessed Vanessa this morning by saying, Vanessa, may you, or may God do this to you. There's a powerful moment there when we can do that to and for one another. And so I challenge you, use actual words out loud to speak words of love. Try it. See what happens in your heart. Don't wait for the feelings. Second, flows right out of this, press into worship at all times. Not just singing, that too, but beginning to see all of your life as worship response to Jesus. The whole thing. Begin to see yourself living and breathing, thinking and acting from the inner circle of God's family love. Not because you feel it, but because Jesus said it. See yourself living and breathing and thinking and acting from that inner circle of God's family love, from that deep belonging. And let your every word and thought and action be framed by that foundational reality. Be intentional about that. Use your imagination. See what difference it makes. Third, spend time with the one you love. When we're married, we need to sometimes schedule in date night with our spouses to cultivate that love and that relationship or with our children 
or with friends, if we want to stay with them and stay friends and stay in a meaningful relationship with other people. The most concrete thing we have that Jesus promises are tied to his actual presence are his words. It's the most concrete thing we have. Spend time in his words. Memorize them. Meditate on them. Think on them on your bed at night. Let them be on your lips when you awake in the morning. Say them under your breath at the grocery store. Say them loud in your car on your way to work. But immerse yourself in Jesus' words, trusting that they're tied in some meaningful way. Abide in my words. Abide in me. Live out of my words. Trust that they're tied in some practical way to the actual presence of Jesus. This passage here confirms there's a close connection between Jesus' words and the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, and if you have the Spirit, you have Jesus. And the Father. And the Father. <laughs> If you have the Spirit, you have Jesus and the Father. If you're with the Spirit, you're with Jesus and the Father. Fourth, and finally, shift your expectations to come into a line with Jesus' words. Hold on to this promise that he gives to all disciples. You will see me. You will perceive me. Remember how slow a learning process it was for the disciples who were with him in the flesh to learn to see who he was over time. Be patient with yourself. But know that there is a learning experience to perceiving the presence of Jesus and the work of Jesus in your life. If you love Jesus, you have the Spirit and the Father and the Son. So act like it and see what happens. Jesus has brought you into a family love that has existed from before time began and one that will never end. And our first act, thought, our first response must always and forever be to acknowledge that love and that belonging. That is worship. And it is our primary reason for existence. To enjoy the love of the Father, to enjoy the love of the Son, to enjoy the belonging that the Holy Spirit works in and through us. And to say, thank you, Jesus, for this love. And to say, I love you back. And our second act and thought, or our second response, is to learn to see everything new in light of this love and belonging, in light of being at that love at the center of the cosmos, to begin to see and hear afresh the work and the words of the always present Jesus with us. And if you don't know Jesus in this way, then may you see, may you perceive that the door is open wide and it is meant for you. And may you see that there is a room prepared for you in the Father's house, prepared for you by the one who sees you and does not relent from a love stronger than death. God, would you root us in these words? Would you teach us how to see, step by step, little by little? Would you teach us to learn to see everything from this new perspective of being 
being a part of this love that existed before time began. God, would you help us to lean into this with our words, with our whole selves, to trust that it's true, to begin to act as if it were true. And as we do that, Lord, we trust that you are faithful, that you will disclose yourself to us. We will begin to see you work in new ways. We love you and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. That's why we pray. For listening to Table Radio, an extension of the life of the Table Church, a community in Victoria, BC. Our mission together is to love God, love each other, and to love and bless our neighbors so that we may see Christ revealed in common life. Music for this episode, provided by the Preparation EP, written and arranged by Coco Relieve, can be found at thetablechurch.bandcamp.com. To learn more about our community, please go to tablechurch.ca. Darkness cannot